Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, June the 18th, 2012, and this is episode 924 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday. We're supposed to make up the uh, call-in show we didn't do Friday, and we're not going to. And we will have two call-in shows this week, I promise you. And uh, we'll get the things caught up because I don't like to let the calls atrophy off. But uh, in the interest of getting a show out today before like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I am going to do kind of a standalone show and just kind of flip things around this week. Because it's my show and I can do that. Now, because it really actually makes sense. Uh, we were gone all weekend uh, and uh, just got back. And then I got a kind of a kind of a late start today because it just didn't feel like it. And it was a long weekend with a lot of driving, and we were up late last night with a guy looking at our RV we're trying to sell. By the way, if anybody wants to buy an awesome Shamrock 21SS hybrid RV, I will make you a hell of a deal. Just email me and ask me about it, but you will have to come to Arkansas to get it. Please keep that in mind. Anyway, so we were up late, and I got out of bed. I didn't feel like so I walked the dogs up and down the property. It was beautiful out. It was The wind was blowing. It was cool. It was It was like... Like somebody set the clock back two months or something this morning, and I had three cups of coffee and walked the dogs and sat on the deck with the dogs who missed us all weekend when we were gone, so it was really easy to lollygag. And then I decided, okay, you got to get your butt in your truck and go to work, so then I get my butt in my truck and I go to work, and when I pull out onto the main road off of the dirt road, I look down to my left, and there are lights and sirens and tow trucks and everything. And a couple people went into the ditch and caused like a molt, like in the, probably the biggest wreck this place has seen in a long time. And uh, it's completely blocked off, so I had to go around the long way, and I got into the office really, really late. And the call-in shows, just to cut to the chase, take a lot longer to produce. And if I'd done a call-in show today, it would probably have gone live around, oh, I don't know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I don't like to wait that late for shows to go out. So we're having a scheduled programming change, and now you know why. Because this is the real world, and real things happen, and we adapt, improvise, and overcome. So what am I going to talk about today? Well, here's what I'm going to do. Since I have stated publicly several times that we are looking to buy land in Texas, and we are really not in love with the idea of living in Arkansas for the rest of our lives and making this our permanent home and that type of thing, uh, because we had a goal to do just that uh, for so long, and so many of you guys were part of this show back when I was still on the road, before I even got off the road and uh, heard all of the plans that I had for this place, you're like, why? What? What's What's wrong? What's gone on? What have you? You know? And then some of you are just like, well, what have you learned? What would you do differently? So that's what I'm going to talk about today. What we've learned, what we would do differently. Some of the things we're really, really happy about, and the reasons for making the change, and some bigger goals that I have today. That I, I frankly, when I, you know, purchased the property, which I purchased years before. Uh, that's a really important thing to understand. I purchased the Arkansas property years before TSP was even thought of. And it was pur purchased with some preparedness concepts in mind and things like that. But I've learned and grown a lot over the years. And I have different goals and agendas now than I did back then. And uh, I think I've matured as a modern survivalist a lot. I'd like to kind of share with you what I've learned and my thoughts on that uh, today after uh, after experiencing this. And hopefully that will help some of you guys out there make better decisions 
when you buy property, whether it's uh, an acre in, in you know a suburban area or whether it's 10 acres out in the middle of a rural area, hopefully you can learn from my successes and failures. I won't even really call them big mistakes because there's nothing we can't live with. There's nothing here that's that's a problem. Everything, you know, there's no stupid tax. Uh, as Dave Ramsey says, it's none of this stuff is going to cost us a penny, and we've really enjoyed our lives. So uh, we'll talk about that today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of uh, sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical, veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and set up in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. And everything you could possibly want to live that tactical lifestyle, you will find at Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, Magpul Magazines, SOE Tactical Gear, and everything in between, including the cool, very cool titanium spork. Check it out today, SawtoothTactical.com. Next up today, ready-made resources. Well, what more can we ask for from a company than for their name of their company to say what they do and then have them do it? Well, that's what you get with ready-made resources. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made and ready to go. Point, click, buy on their website. Ship to you quick, efficient, and fast. And uh, great pricing and great service. And if you need anything and you can't figure out what you need uh, from either one of these two uh, great companies and great long-term sponsors of the show, pick the phone up, give them a call, and a real person will answer your call and help you. That's the kind of companies we like to have on board as sponsors at the Survival Podcast. Uh, quick note, uh, I don't see any of our sponsors going anywhere anytime soon. Those of you who have been emailing me, when can I get on as a sponsor? Frankly, I'm not even building the waiting list at this point. Um, I, I think that we are at a point now where if you want to work with us uh, and you have something unique and different and you can do something really cool, the only thing that people that are looking to get on board work with us right now need to be thinking about is how they can support the Member Support Brigade with some sort of special discount program. And look at what's already there and see if you can figure out a way to fit in. Because I just think it's not fair for me to have any of you guys asking a sponsor of the show right now. Because, frankly, the guys that are here know what they have and they're not leaving. And uh, so just a little side note there today. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade, as I just mentioned. Uh, if you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. And uh, you get discounts to vendors, and right now there's 32 of them, and those discounts more than pay for the membership. So you support the show, and there's no real cost to you if you use the benefits, uh, because frankly, you get $150 worth of free ebooks the day you join, so that kind of covers you for a year and a half. All right, with everything wrapped up, let's go ahead and uh, get into the today's show and uh, talk a little bit about what we've learned. Again, you know, I realize that for some of you, you're like, well, Jack, you changed the rules on us, man. We were like, we were part of this getting to Arkansas thing. And, and my response is yes. And now you'll be part of this bigger, better, and even cooler thing. Uh, I actually have had like one or two emails with people that are actually upset with me, which I find really ironic. And I, I won't go into that, but it's just like, you know, how dare you after all this time? It's like, what? What? You, <laughs> and I, but I think there's a bigger lesson there that I want to kind of start out with today. It's not really in my notes that I put together for today's show. Uh, but I think that one of the most important things that we can learn as a society is that the minute you determine that something's a mistake or that something's not right for you or that you're headed in the wrong direction or that you're on the wrong path, methodically, logically, and without knee-jerk reaction, immediately start corrective action. So for us, corrective action wasn't, well, we really don't like this anymore. We want to move back to Texas. Let's just put a for sale sign in the lot without getting anything ready to go, and let's just move, and let's, let's not worry about our lease with our landlord, because we're on a lease with a landlord here, so we're going to be at least here to the end of the term of that lease. Uh, let's, you know, uh, for the office and, and, and things like that. And let's just, just, just go. 
right? No, it was, let's start looking for property. Let's see what's available. Let's see what the cost is. Let's see what's available in mortgage for us right now. Let's start getting the paperwork together. Let's talk to our family. Let's see what works for them. Let's just start the planning phase. And that's what we did a few months ago. And we, by doing that, we sold ourselves on this idea not only can work and will work, but will improve our lives. So I think that that's a huge lesson. I think, let me tell you how many people need to learn that lesson. Almost everybody. Almost everybody on the planet, and, and certainly most people in the first world need to learn that lesson because we get into wars that are mistakes, and then we say, well, we have to keep fighting it even though we, you know, we realize that we shouldn't have done it in the first place. Uh, you know, well, so many people have already died that, well, so you're going to have more people die, right? And I'm not being any war right now or anything. Actually, I am. I'll, I'll tell you what. When I first got into the libertarian movement, the term anti-war really bothered me. Because I equated anti-war with peacenik pinko fairies. I mean, it just didn't make sense to me. Anti-war. You know, there are people that are against any war no matter what. And then I thought about it and I said to myself, are you anti-war or are you pro-war? Because those are only two options you really have. And the, and the answer was I'm completely opposed to war. And it took me back to the old saying that as a soldier I understand nobody hates war more than a soldier. So I am absolutely anti-war. It doesn't mean we won't fight one if we need to. But it also means if we made a mistake, we need to back up. And that's, I think that's a larger lesson. And I think many, many people live their life on the micro and the macro level this way. Like, well, I, I picked the wrong major in college and I hate my career, but I have to stick with it now. Well, no, you don't, right? And, 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 you know, well, we bought this house and now we're stuck with it. Well, no, you're not. I mean, I'll, I'll even today, I'll tell you how you get rid of a house when you think you're stuck with it. In many instances, not in all instances, there's places where people are really upside down and really can't get out. But in a lot of instances, doing a few things the right way can actually change that. All right. So I, I want to kind of start off with that preface today that, that today's big lesson is if you are making a mistake, if you're actively engaged in something that's working against you, the time to change is now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. That doesn't mean that you make a, you know, a 180 this second. It means that you begin the process. And when a ship's out at sea and it's steaming along at full power, right, it can't just turn around on a dime. It might have to make a big slowdown and a big sweeping turn and it might take a while to come back, but it can turn around. And if it's heading for a freaking iceberg, I'm thinking turning and slowing down might be good ideas. Just saying. So think about it that way. Um, what is the big drivers, though? What are some of the things that we've really learned, uh, good and bad here? The biggest one we've learned is that leaving family fairly far behind may be a lot harder than you thought it was. Now, I actually think that it was a great thing for my son. I did a show on parenting last week and how amazing of a young man my 22-year-old son is now. And I think a tremendous amount of that growth occurred in the last year and a half, while we weren't really there very often, so that he had to live his own life. And he didn't have us to just, whenever he was bored, okay, now I'm going to hang out with mom and dad. Or whenever I'm a few bucks short, now let's go get something to eat together and that type of thing. Uh, and he wasn't bad about it, but it was always there like a crutch. And when you remove the crutch, then people stop using it and they learn to walk. Uh, and then they, when they want to walk, they learn to run. So I think it was a good thing, but like, you know, we just spent, we have an apartment down there we keep and we, we just went down there for, uh, the weekend and we spent it with our son. We spent it with my, uh, my sister and brother-in-law and our nieces and nephews and my wife's, uh, father. And we spent a lot of time with them and it was nice to be there. It was nice to be able to have conversations with them face to face. It was nice to be around them. And, where we're looking now will put us about two to two and a half hours out from there. 
And folks, a two to two hour two hour drive, you could do that any day you want to. If you just feel like you know what today, I want to go in in and see them on a weekend. You can leave at eight o'clock in the morning. You're there by ten. You can stay till five. You can leave your home by seven, right? And that's just something that's not feasible when you're talking about distances at six hours. So it's one of those things I've always talked about when I talk about having a fallback location, a homestead, a secondary location, is thinking about the needs of your family. And I can tell you that as much as I want to be closer, it's even more important to my wife. And I believe that as husbands, that we should stand next to our wives and we should make sure that we're we're filling their needs as well. And that means sometimes that there's there's certain things that you compromise on, you know, like because I've said before, I could be out on a, you know 80 acres in Idaho and be pretty happy. But she would be miserable, which means I would be miserable. So a big part of this is you guys look for property as a fallback location, as a bug out location, as a permanent homestead, whatever it is, is think about the fact that you may in fact use it as a quote-unquote bug out location when not everybody's bugging out. It could be because you've set it up, you've made it self-sufficient, you've got it going, it's your vacation home, it's paid for, you've got all your alternative stuff going on there, you've got a food foresting, you've got it all set up as this great vacation place, and then one day one of you guys loses your job and you realize you can't afford to live in the city anymore and you sell your house and you just go there. That is more probable than a road warrior bug out. It's absolutely more probable. The other thing that happens is maybe you get that set up And then one of you finds this way in your career to actually work from a remote location, and now you can go there. So I, I think that we need to keep ourselves open to being close to family because you may go there when it's not the end of the world as you know it. It may be just a shift in the world for you. So proximity to family is something I think that we really need to think about. Uh, not in my notes, but a, a key issue for me now is I want to make sure I have high-speed Internet wherever I'm at. And there's a lot of rural property now that you can do that with. Uh, it wasn't the case, you know, uh, back when we bought this place. And so that's that's a key thing for me. So uh, because I want to basically have a little office built into, you know, like a uh, an air conditioned area of a you know, walled off air conditioned area of a barn, or bring in a uh, build a little offsite office, or if there's an appropriate place in the home that's set up and sequestered, uh, I want to get back to working from home again uh, and not driving my car every day. Not driving my truck every day. I actually enjoy the drive, but uh, I think there's some real advantages to not having to do that. And keep it separate but contained. Uh, so high-speed Internet is actually something I think is pretty important. If you're of the mindset that there ever could come a day where you can work remotely, because doing it without it is all but impossible. It, it really is. It just, it just really is impossible. And things like satellite Internet are fine for checking email once in a while and surfing the web and stuff like that, but they will not let you run a business or even work remotely effectively. It's not dependable enough. It's not reliable enough. So there's another thing to look at. Um, another thing for us is the importance of being what we call vested in the larger community. I actually love my neighbors. I think they're great people. They don't know we're going to leave yet, and I think they're going to be pretty upset when they find out because they are really happy that we're there. We have a great relationship. We're kind of the first guard at the gate, uh, so we, we manage people coming in and out uh, and make sure that people that, that don't belong don't end up in there, and we do a really good job of that. We look after each other's property when either one's away. So I have a great feeling of being vested in that little little micro-community there, But I have almost no feeling of being vested in the larger community. Um, I can't explain it. I can't give you a good reason for it, a logical reason for it. All I can tell you is it is the way that it is. 
I may have been, you know, born in Jersey, rapidly ended up in Florida, and basically my earliest memories are in Florida. Been raised in Florida up to, until my teens with, with summer vacations in Pennsylvania, then went to high school in Pennsylvania, then went to the Army and lived in Panama, then went back to Pennsylvania, and then ended up in Texas. But to me, I'm a Texan. And I, again, I can't give you a logical reason for it. There's certainly uh, plenty of reason for me to feel like I'm a Floridian because your formative years are your formative years. My family's from Pennsylvania. I have an incredible love of the woods and the streams and the lakes in Pennsylvania. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I have an extreme attraction to that, but I don't consider myself a Pennsylvanian. Uh, we've had this property here in Arkansas as a vacation home at least since 2004. Three, I think, or four, but a long time, seven, eight years, and uh, I don't consider myself an Arkansas, and I consider myself a Texan. When I think about having a larger impact on, on the larger community, the place I want to do it's there. The place that I want to make my stand as a liberty, uh, a warrior for liberty, is there. And I'm not saying that you know this isn't a good place to do it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with here. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Florida or Pennsylvania or New Hampshire or Vermont or Wyoming or, you know, wherever it is that you want to be. But I think most of us, we have a place that when we're there, we feel like this I'll defend. This is, or even, not even that, this is mine. Like you and I could go to a car lot and look at a whole bunch of really cool cars. And I might sit in a car or a truck and go, this, this feels like I belong here. This feels like what I want to drive, what I want to be in every day, what I want to use for my work or for my recreation or whatever it is. And you might get in it and go, not so much. I don't really like this at all. And then you might get into something else and go, this is this is mine, right? And, and, and the two of us may completely disagree about that, and neither one of us is wrong. We're choosing the vehicle for us. And that's kind of like I feel that, you know, if I'm going to get more involved on the larger community level, run workshops and, 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 and build up a, a true community beyond just the people I can see, you know, up and down my road a little bit, uh, that that's where I want to do it. And, again, I can't explain it. I'm not saying it's, it's not a superiority thing, like, you know, Texans are better than everybody else. It's just out of all the places I've lived in the world, and it's, you know, you can add Honduras to that list. You can add uh, Costa Rica to that list. You can add places all over the world that I've been. It's the one place that when I was there, I felt like this is where I, this is home. And it may have a lot to do with the fact that I wrote, you know, raised up a child there, that I got married there. And that may be why, but whatever it is, it is, and I'm not going to fight it. Uh, so the place that I want to maybe get involved with local counties and creating community gardens and, and creating workshops and, and, and maybe getting involved on some level of local government, not so much as somebody active in it, but somebody influencing it, is there. So it, it's a much bigger thing than just the land. Um, I also want to tell you that I think on the land aspect of things, that as your view of the world changes, so does your view of perfect property. When I first bought the property in Arkansas, I sat... And I thought a long time about it, and I thought to myself, you know, we need a place that's extremely affordable, that if I lost my job, and I was making really good money back then, I mean really good money with a job in corporate America, uh, I was dabbling with the internet and all, but I wasn't anywhere near what I would consider a success as, as you know, an online entrepreneur with that, you know, sit at home and work mentality yet, I was working for it, I thought I would get there someday, and my thought was, well, if I can get there early because I don't need that much, then affordability is a huge thing. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of, I mean, the housing boom was going on, right? There wasn't a lot of affordable property uh, available. So I could have got a mortgage for five times 
the amount. I could have got this big estate somewhere, but you know, I'm like, we're not going to be there a lot, and and if I need this, so I thought about the fallback mentality was one thing. I also looked at the world and as a as a prepper, even then, thought, hey, you know, things could go really bad, and I want to be the hell out of Dodge if they do. I want to be in a place that you know, like nobody's coming, and if they do, it's highly defendable. And I don't want to give all of that up yet. But it's not the priority for me today that it was then. I feel much more secure in my knowledge of how to be self-sufficient and self-reliant and how to build community. I'm much more of a person that believes that uh, going it alone won't work. I've always believed that to a degree, but I'm actually committed to it now. And that changes what perfect is for me. I also, you know, when I bought the property, I've always been a gardener. I thought permaculture was you planted a tree instead of you planted corn. I had no idea that permaculture was beyond planting perennials. And I didn't understand water harvesting. And I didn't understand integrated relationships between livestock and the land. I knew you could take horse crap and compost it. But I didn't understand that I could take goats and actually run them on the land and have their fertility increase right behind them and chase the fertility increase. There were so many things that I didn't, e I wasn't even aware of. That I, I, that when I bought a property, I wasn't even looking at them. Even in the last two or three years, uh, with learning from people like Jeff Lott and going on workshops with people like Sepp Holzer, actually going down to and seeing what what Marjorie did at Backyard Food Production, and and even a lot of things where I went out and looked at what other people were doing, and go, well, I wouldn't do that. I would do this, 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 and this. And I realized that my mind is now working at a higher level when it comes to understanding landscape and slope and design. So, so clearly, with that evolution in mentality, I'm going to look at property different. I'm going to value different things in property I wouldn't before. Um, I also want to tell you that this is another thing that I, you know, when I bought the property, it was like it's five acres. Whatever I need to do, I can make work because I got five acres. And if I have to cut down an acre of trees, I'll cut down an acre of trees. Now that I understand landscape, and I understand slope, and I understand erosion, I realize to go onto my property, especially with the solar aspect I have, the quality of the timber that's there, which is oak and hickory, which is very long-term timber, and to cut that would just be, uh, it's just something I don't want to do. So I have this, you know, maybe half, maybe half acre of really workable space that I've taken to a really high level now, and it'll do plenty, and it provides more food than we really need in the summertime, but it doesn't allow me to do a lot of the things that I want to do. But if that five acres was well-situated and largely open and could be put into food forest and swaled and ponded and all kinds of great things, then it would probably be more than enough, even though I want more than that. Now, I'm looking at a neighborhood of 15 to 20 acres is what my goal is. But that's because I don't think anybody ever goes, damn, I wish I bought less. But I think five would be more than enough. But it depends on how the land lays. So that leads me to my next thing that we've learned. Mountain land may not be all that it's cracked up to be. Or it might be. It all depends on what you want and what your goals are and where you're located. If our mountain property backed up to you know, 180,000 acres of state game land or something like that, that had four-wheeler trails that we could go right off our land into there, and we could take much more of a hunter-gatherer approach, it might work well. If we were in mountains that are far more like the mountainous areas in Pennsylvania that have lots of soil buildup on them, it might work better. 
um, and, and more temperate climates to work with. If our property had a solar aspect that was south facing versus east, or actually west facing, and wasn't fully forested on that west facing slope, it, it might be better. So there's, we really, when we look at land, we have to look at far more than just the space and the footage. In fact, what I would tell you is that for most people, an acre is more than enough. An acre is absolutely more than enough land. In, 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 I'll tell you honestly, if you gave me an acre of relatively, you know, gentle sloping land in a suburban neighborhood, as long as I'm not going to be harassed by a homeowners association and city code and things like that, if I have an acre that's relative, not completely flat, but relatively flat, uh, and, and the house is kind of in the right spot on it, I could do more with an acre than I can do with the five that I have now. I could do significantly more with an acre. In some ways, with the right landscape and layout, I could do more with a half an acre. And I could do a lot with a quarter of an acre. Understanding what I do now, I could have taken the, the, the property we owned in Arlington to a level that I think most people can't even imagine. But it needed time, and I knew that wasn't the place we wanted to stay. So I didn't have the time to get it there. Or I could have taken that to a much higher level as well. But there's limits to what you can do in neighborhoods as well. Again, you know, there are chickens allowed and stuff like that. So I don't think we need a lot of land, but I'm still very big on getting out of the main suburbs to a point where if you can get an unincorporated land and things like that where just nobody bothers you it is really a big thing. Um, I also today have a much bigger desire to put land into water structures than I ever did before because I understand what it can do for you. And when I look at property, I'm really hoping to find property somewhere where I can put a dam in at a higher level than the house, at a higher level than most of the rest of the land. Because now I've got gravity-fed uh, irrigation. I've got redundancy that I've never even thought of before. Even if I can only put a small dam up there, right, and I can take a larger dam and run a pump from the, small from the large dam to the smaller dam, and I can actually overfill the small dam into a swale system. What that gives me is a level of redundancy that normally I wouldn't have. Because even if the power goes out and I can't run the pump, I have the water that's up there that can be dropped into the irrigation system and still such time as I can get power back to run the pump again. So that effectively drought-proofs land. And then all that work that you've put into something, you don't lose because, uh, I don't know, you're without power for a couple of weeks. Or the well, the well fails and it takes a week to get it fixed. Or whatever it is. Whether it's a catastrophic major event or it's just a catastrophic event for you. So that that's part of it. The other part of it is I understand the predict, productivity uh, of, of water today far more than anything else. When I, and as a person that's also really discovered paleo, um, protein sources. So the fact that if you have you know five acres of property and you put it into three acres of water, and, and and that's something I'd be willing to do. I would be more than willing to cut down only two acres of land and have three acres of water, especially if it's you know five or six or seven ponds to, to make that happen and interconnections between them. The level of productivity there is extreme. The level of stability there is extreme. The level of diversity there is extreme. And the ability to harvest protein is extreme. Nothing grows as fast as it does when it's in water, right? Because it doesn't have to hold its own body weight up. So from a standpoint of meat production, I think the easiest thing to produce is fish. And if you have a family, even let's say an extended family, you know, a, a dozen people living on a property with three acres of water, uh, you can probably pull a fish meal out twice a week uh, out of a system like that and properly manage. You're not even going to dent it. 
and you're not feeding it anything, right? You're just not. You're not really feeding it anything. It's it's self-sustaining if it's properly uh, installed and managed properly. You're not doing a lot of work for it. Uh, it doesn't go bad. Its storage life is infinite. You only take it as you need it, kind of like we do with rabbits, but you don't have to go feed it every day. Even if you're feeding in an aquaculture system, if you have a pond with catfish in it, you want those catfish to be a primary farm crop. So you have a little tenth of an acre uh, pond, and that's your catfish farm pond. Uh, and you have your other ponds elsewhere that are more in a natural system. And those catfish need to be fed once a day, a pelletized meal. Well, a, a pole and a deer feeder and a, and a a fifteen dollar uh, solar panel to keep the battery topped off, and I'm t I'm talking about you know a five gallon pail deer feeder, and you fill that up, and you can go three weeks with that before you have to touch it again. And you know again, so I have this whole desire now to put as much water into a property and as much earthwork structure of a pro into a property as I can. And the place that I'm at now, the acreage isn't the problem; it's the way the acreage lies. It's the fact that it's all granite and stone. Um, so I want more ability to do that, and, and the water thing to me is huge. I'm also now far more interested in daily self-sufficiency and less in bugging out. And I'll tell you, I think a big part of that was getting out of the suburbs in the first place. Once you're out of the suburbs, you're not so concerned with what happens if there's riots in the streets. You're thinking, okay, I've backed off about this far. If you come out this far and mean me harm, I'm well within my rights to, to, to institute defense. I'm living around people that feel the exact same way. We still can partake in the modern system, but we don't have to. And all of a sudden, a lot of the concern and anxiety that goes with living in an apartment or living in the suburbs just goes away. And the concept of I need to be completely gone and off the grid drops. And you start to realize, I don't need to be completely gone and off the grid. I just need to remove myself from the critical areas where things are most likely to happen. And now that I've done that, Maybe I've gone a little further back than I need to. That I, that I could be a little bit closer to things that are convenient while things are available. Uh, I also think that, I, again, my job with the Survival Podcast initially was I felt like a, a, a fireman that was going out spraying fires out. Like seeing all these problems and going, here it is, fix this, here it is, fix this, here it is, fix, put this fire out, put that fire out, get out of debt, that type of thing. And now I look at it more, I feel like a fire marshal. And the fire marshal's primary job is to go, if you don't do certain things to that building, it's, it, 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 it'll burn down. If it gets, there's an open flame there and it starts, it, it'll get fully consumed, fully involved, we won't be able to save it. So, put in a fire suppression system, spray it with a fire retardant, uh, make sure we're using plenum rated stuff in the ceilings, all these different things that a fire marshal would do. Make sure there's a smoke system, an alarm system, make sure there's an evacuation plan. And, and far more about, let's prevent the burn down from happening in the first place. And even if it catches on fire, let's get the fire out before it burns all the way down. And that makes me far more interested today in self-sufficiency on a daily basis. Because I believe that the best thing I can do at this point to help my country deal with the catastrophes that are going to come, like an economic collapse, I believe that's inevitable. What it looks like and when it happens, I don't know. But I believe it's inevitable. How the hell could it not have? Math, math doesn't lie, and the math is really scary when we look at it. So my belief is the more self-sufficient, self-reliant that I can get people on a daily basis, the better they'll be able to handle this. If we think about the Great Depression as bad as it was, a lot of people fought their way through it. And if you weren't sitting in the middle of the Dust Bowl where everything dried up, a lot of people in, in rural, especially small town rural, 
got through it fairly well because they knew what to do. They knew how to handle it. When something broke, Dad just fixed it instead of going, we can't afford a new one, so now we're screwed. And I think we need to come back to that. And, and, and I want my role to be far more about teaching than, than it even has been up till now, if that's possible, and teaching people how to do these things and how they're possible. Um, I also have a desire to be able to house additional people for a variety of reasons that I won't go into right now. But I'm not talking about a survivalist camp. But I am thinking about more of the ability that if someone else needs to come stay with us, it's more convenient, it's easier. There's a guest quarter, so to speak. As I take 15 acres and turn it into a permaculture farm, my thought is, why not bring a couple woofers in? You know, two or three woofers at any given time during a rotation. Let them do the work, let them learn. Uh, and my standpoint of bringing woofers in might be different than anybody else has ever done before. I don't need a property to produce a farm income for me. So my thought is, when I bring woofers in, I might say, okay, well, you have an acre to manage. You have an acre to manage. Here it is. Here's how you might have to do some work on some other stuff, but this is your acre to shepherd and, and guard and work for a harvest on. And when it's harvested, you get all the profit. But you have to figure out how to get it to market. You figure out how to sell it. We'll help you, but you're really on your own. This is, if you're Joe, this is Joe's acre farm. And Joe, go nuts with it. Develop relationships, develop distribution channels, things like that. And here's why. I think a lot of people that want to go into urban farming, small-scale farming, things like that, they think that farming is about producing the food. That's, that's half the equation, and frankly, it's the least important half, because anywhere you go, you can put some system in that will grow something, that will be productive, that can be sold. The key is being able to sell it, being able to market, being able to set up a distribution channel, understand how to get that done. So we're thinking that way, too, as well. And we're also thinking that if we have that ability... We have people that we're taking care of like that, that are making part of the operation on a highly selective basis, by the way. If something does go wrong, you've got more body count, you've got more ability to handle things like security. Uh, so, you know, when we do that, we'll not be looking for the hippie that wants to sit around and contemplate their navel. We want the person that says, is it okay to carry on your property? I mean, and don't send me any emails saying you want to get in line for this, folks. This is so far out in the future Don't go there, please. I got people already. I want to get in line for the Jeff Lawton workshop. When we, when we have dates and times, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. I, I'm sure it won't sell out overnight or anything, but just, I'm giving you kind of where we're thinking along those lines. So we're looking, are there a few building sites where you can put in some small kind of tiny house cottages? You know, stuff that's like 200 square feet and has a bed and is comfortable and a place where a person can get away, whether it be a visitor and, and as we do workshops, You know, if we have four or five of those things, some people can stay on site, maybe charge a small additional fee for that. Um, there's all types of things that opens up. So I'm, I'm trying to be far more receptive because I've had people email me and go, Jack, why don't you run a workshop at your property in Arkansas, taking only selected people, come up there and do, you know, how to, how to do some primitive skills or something like that, you know, and maybe only bring in 20 people. And I go, 20 people? <laughs> And it's not I don't want to give away the location. There's plenty of people who have come up and visited. I've got people coming up, I think maybe this week and, and, and definitely around the 4th of July that are just people out of the audience. I'm not secretive. I don't hide. I don't publish my addresses, but I don't hide. And um, But when I think about 20 people, I go, where the hell would I put them? It's just the parking alone. You know, I'd have to set up a shuttle service, you know, park down at the bottom of the mountain and we'll come get you or something like that. It's just not, it's not conducive to it. 
and it, it just doesn't make sense. And I want to be able to run things like that. I want to be able to have a week-long event where you come in and you learn permaculture and primitive skills and financial analysis. And I mean the whole, you know, to come in and, and actually change the way that you run your life. And I don't mind using my own facility to do that, to even, you know, where I live. And oh, people will know. Well, anybody that wants to know can find out. Right, and, and again, it would be people who would have to be, you know, selectively, uh, you know, set up to come before they would would be given the actual uh, address. Just don't like people dropping by and announcing things like that. But I am thinking much more along those lines right now uh, because I want the ability to really teach others, and I mean more hands-on. I want to be able to do more video work. I want to be able to do a. Sh I mean, again, guys, I I'm looking at when we get this property. Hopefully by the spring we have it set up, and we're going to bring in you know Jeff Lawton, who's a world-renowned designer, to design the earthworks, and and maybe not even all the earthworks get put in while he's there, but he gets the the, the the you know the keystone component we'll put in and leave behind a design. I want this to be a showcase. I want this to be a place when people really want to know. Well, how do you take a harsh environment with a you know modicum of rainfall like East Texas and turn it into something of total abundance? I want you to be able to come there and just walk it from one end to the other and go, oh, my God, now I understand. And I also want to be able to teach other things as well, like food stores, like food preservation. And here's what I'm starting to realize about permaculture far more than I ever did before. When I, had, like when I talk with Jeff, uh, Jeff Lawton, and he starts talking about things from a permaculture standpoint, And even going a little deeper into concern about not using fossil fuels and, and using only renewable resources than I am concerned with doing because I am not a greenie. I, I consider myself a conservationist more than an environmentalist. I want to preserve the land. I want to manage the resources properly. But I don't really care what your carbon footprint is. I care what your pollution footprint is. But I'm more concerned about sulfur oxide and things like that. Uh, so, you know, he'll say things like, you know, you know, Well, if you can't hold water uh, somewhere above your house and above your crops, then you're going to have to run a diesel generator pump or something like that to, or an electrical pump to, to get the water where you need it to be. And then you're using fossil fuels and what have you. And my response is, I use fossil fuels every day. I, you know, I, it's not like I'm going, yay, I used a bunch today. It, it, it's just that I'm not that concerned about it as, as some other people in the environmental movement are. But then I think about, well, what kind of self-reliance quotient am I creating when I take this approach? And the answer is a much bigger one. If I can put in an irrigation system into a piece of property that uses very little to no fossil fuels, that's almost 100% gravity fed, well then, I am completely independent when it comes to irrigation. I can move water all over my property. I can make sure everything grows. Everything's passive. It's less work. It's less cost. And if, the, and if I can't get you know, 10 gallons of diesel fuel for this month, I don't care. So that's, that's another thing that I've begun to really realize about permaculture, that it is survivalism. I don't call it that. But if you think about any really well-designed and developed permaculture master site, they're the most self-sufficient operations that you'll ever, you'll ever find. And that one thing that people like myself, who think that man-made global warming is a big pile of crap. Now, man-made desertification is not. Uh, climate, man-made cause climate change is absolutely real. It just has nothing to do with the air you exhale. 
I mean, when we turn an area that used to be a forest into a desert, we've modified the climate. That also reduces rainfall. That modifies the climate. That might even contribute to some level of warming of the planet. But it ain't CO2, and you got to ask yourself, well, why? Why has the government held up this one most divisive, unprovable thing to separate us from people that supposedly care from people that don't, because that's exactly what it does, and then we don't actually fix the problem, and the polluters will be able to pay to pollute with a carbon tax. And we'll create a new commodity, and I don't want to go into all that, but the problem is that for people like me that know that that's a pile of crap, we know that that's a lie, when anything starts to go into that gray area between we're just taking care of the planet and it's carbon, right? we, we start to kind of go, yeah, I don't really want to hear this. And that's a mistake. That's a mistake, not because the carbon's hurting the planet, because the carbon cycle's so valuable. Do you know what I want carbon in the soil? Fertility. That's what I want carbon, fertility. Right? Do you know why I want carbon in my soil when my water's flowing through uh, my soil and, and trickling down the lower for creating clean water? Because car what do you filter water with? Carbon is ex the carbon cycle is one of the most valuable things we can understand, implement, and use, and it has nothing to do with the air you exhale. Right? It's not about the CO2 in the atmosphere. Because there is a saturation limit, guys. It's a proven fact. It's been known since the 1800s. I'm sorry you're being lied to, right? But it doesn't mean that we don't want to sequester carbon because it has this extreme value. And we've been blinded to that. So one thing I have to do, and I have to challenge myself to do, is when I start to hear these things that are about reduction of fossil fuels and all, is to go, well, Jack, you're for that, and don't let this cloud your judgment. Don't let this cloud your judgment because there's some people that have another desire in mind. Don't be closed-minded the way they are. Like, it's only okay to put solar panels on your roof if you think you're, you're reducing your carbon footprint. I think people like that are idiots. Right? I put it up there because I want more independence. Right? It's the same goal. It's the same end. So just be happy. And I, and I have to challenge myself to do that as well. But what I find is the more I do that, the, more, the better of a modern survivalist I become. Because now I don't need, and that's the whole point. Right? Because even the concept of, well, I'll just put in you know, 5,000 gallons of tanks and store fuel, it'll still run out someday. Right? It'll still go bad if you keep it too long. You gotta burn through some of it. Right? You can put a couple thousand gallons of propane away and you still, it's still a finite endeavor. And there's an expense and a cost. Right? And I'm not saying not to do it, but I'm saying splitting your efforts might be, uh, a really good idea. Okay, moving on so we get through this today. Um, another big thing is I want to work with a lot more livestock than I possibly can. I mean, I could pen some stuff up and bring feed in for them and all, but that's not very self-sufficient. Um, as I start looking at the permaculture zone model and the zone three main crop model, I look at it and go, well, I actually, in this climate that I'm going to be working in, I can grow a fair amount of grains, especially, let's say, some creative grains, some alternative grains like amaranth or quinoa or millet and, and things like that. And I'm not a grain eater. I'm just not. Uh, but you know what is? It's chickens. And that type of a feed mixed with an, you know, a natural uh, insect-based environment is a, is a huge, great way to grow high-quality protein in the form of eggs and chickens. And I can do that here, but then I have to kind of confine the chickens and only put them in certain areas at certain times and can't really do paddock shift and things like that. Uh, maybe I could run some hogs and people say, well, you know, hogs actually do well in forests. Yeah, but you got a slope issue and moving them around and it just, I mean, it just doesn't work where I'm at right now. So uh, another big thing that I would look at with, with buying land today with fresh eyes is how much livestock can I put on it? And especially low maintenance livestock, uh, things that can do a lot for themselves and, and take care of themselves and look after themselves a lot. 
but you know, what can I grow for the livestock? How much of their, their own food can I produce? And again, I'm not looking to be a rancher or a farmer. I, I, in reality, I'm not looking to produce, you know, 500 broiler hens uh, a year. I'm just and, and sell them. All. I just that's just not me. That's it, and it's there's nothing wrong. I think it's a great business, and I think we need people to do it. And, and it, the only way we're gonna, you know, stop the atrocities of people like Tyson and Purdue. And if you want to see how bad it is, go watch Food Inc. It's free. You can watch it on on uh, YouTube. Uh, it, it's it's awful. It's a horrible way to treat an animal, even an animal you're going to eat. The only way we're going to actually change that, though, is more and more people are going to have to go out and do those types of small uh, poultry operations and raise chickens that are actually raised like chickens. Uh, because right now, let's put it this way, if every middle-class family in America that's going to eat chicken this week snapped to how terrible the, the current supply of poultry is and said, I am only going to buy naturally raised uh, chicken from local producers that I know how that animal was was taken care of and and and, and grown and there's no no uh, no abuse to the animal and the animal actually could get sunlight and was able to get out and scratch and and maybe not you know live a great you know like it's not like a life of a of a movie star or anything but live like a chicken and every family that was going to do that in a middle class you know zone that could afford to do it this week that's going to eat chicken went out and tried to do it this week there wouldn't be enough supply they just wouldn't. And they'd end up buying Tyson or Purdue or eating something other than chicken because there's just not enough supply right now. So we need people to do that. But that's just not what I want to do. I want to be able to grow enough to, you know, maybe eat a chicken a week. Uh, maybe eat a rabbit a week. Uh, maybe take out and slaughter one or two goats a year, one or two hogs a year. I want to produce 60 70% of our meat uh, for myself and my wife uh, on our own property. And I don't think there's any problem doing that with 15 acres. Not at all. Not it, you add fish to that and all, and so I want to work a lot more with livestock. But I also understand the integrated relationship between livestock and the property now at a much higher level. I want the animals as much for the fertility and the work that they can do while they're just being themselves. Their intrinsic characteristics allow them to do work that you see as work, and they just see it as just being a pig or being a chicken or being a pigeon. Or, or whatever the animal is that you you know in particular that you're raising, um, so that's that's kind of the big thing for me. And I think another big thing that's kind of changed my perspective is um, one, I didn't have any idea that I would have the success that I have with Survival Podcast uh, back when I bought my property, and I hadn't even thought of Survival Podcast yet. So we have. You know, we're not rich or anything, but God, no, not even close. But we have the ability to live a good middle class living from what we do. And that opens up an entire different level of property, especially now we're back to, you know, probably just having one and some sort of a bug out plan to go with it that, you know, I'll talk about later because that's kind of, that's part of the plan here and we're not, we haven't fully developed it yet. So we'll get to that one day, folks. I'll, trust me, I'm going to come up with the ultimate low cost bug out plan. Uh, when it really needs to happen, and, and, and I'll share it with you. Uh, but from a, from a standpoint of an ongoing expense, having one place again, so that opens things up. And there's just deals available now that are, that are just not available. That, I'm sorry, that just weren't available when we, when we did this. Um, I have looked at properties in the $130,000 to $150,000 range in East Texas with ponds already on the property, with a barn, with a workshop, uh, three-bedroom house, not a palace, but a decent little house. Uh, you know, frame-built houses from, you know, 15, 20, 30 years old. Um, 15 acres, 10 acres, 20 acres, somewhere in that range. Uh, Off-county roads, uh, DSL available. Uh, relatively close to a decent-sized town with uh, your general stores and all, but kind of out in the middle of nowhere. In farm country, good soil, 
um, relatively not abused land. It's not it's not been well maintained, but it's not really been abused either. Easy stuff to rehab. Decent fertility there. Areas with decent rainfall. All of that going for it uh, in that price range. Properties like I'm discussing back seven, eight years ago would have cost $300,000, $400,000 in the same areas. And it just, it, the, the, so the availability, and this is back what I said in 2008, when I was begging people when I first started the show to get their money out of the stock market. I was begging people, please do it. Please protect your, I mean, I was saying it like almost every third or fourth day. Please protect your money. Please protect your hard-earned dollars. And this was the reason. It wasn't just that you didn't lose. What I said was the whole world's about to go on sale. And some of you guys are sitting on, you know, $200,000, $300,000 that you've been saving up for 20 or 30 years. And if you have that cash, when this crash comes, you're going to have opportunities. And we're continuing to see these opportunities come. So another reason that we're looking to do this now is there's just the ability to do things that just weren't possible at the amount of money I want to spend seven years ago. You couldn't go buy 15 acres with a barn and a house and a pond and land that laid nice and, you know, 50% of it's wooded and 50% of it's open and you've got the blank slate plus the woods and, and, and the, you just couldn't do it. You just couldn't do it. And, and today, if those properties were still selling for three or, or $400,000, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do it in good conscience. Maybe I could survive, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be following the example that I teach of living within your means and living well below your means. And if everything falls apart, can you still be there at least six months while you figure out what to do next? And I have to continue to follow what I teach, not just because I believe I have a responsibility to do it, because I actually believe it. You know, I mean, I, I don't stick to my teachings because of some obligation to the student. I stick to it because of an obligation to myself. The stuff I teach is stuff I've figured out for myself over the years. I've learned from mistakes and successes and failures, and and uh, I, I, I want to stick to it because I know it works. I'd like to finish up today with some general principles that we've learned uh, about real estate in general and land in general over the years and you know buying, quite a, buying and selling quite a few houses. Uh, the biggest one and the most important thing that you can do when you buy a property, in my opinion, is always have an exit strategy. Always have an exit strategy. Um, we looked at one property. Uh, just under $200,000, which we could go that high if we wanted to and, and still do everything the right way. We have a, we're going to do a big down payment and, and what have you. Uh, beautiful land, uh, 24 acres, two-acre bond, huge, gorgeous horse barn. I'm talking about a horse barn that you would have to put $50,000 into to build today. I mean, just gorgeous. Uh, beautiful land, about half-wooded, half-open. House, two bedrooms, already a problem. I'll get to why in a minute. Not, more, not, not that there's not enough room there for me, and there's like an outside office and all to use, so that would have worked for the business. But the flat reality is two bedrooms do not sell as well as three bedrooms if you ever have to sell it. It's just a flat reality. Second problem, uh, I don't know what, was, what, what kind of drugs these people were using when they built this house. It's a beautiful custom-built home. And, uh, but they didn't put central air in it. No central air. No central air up in the Adirondacks of New York, New York State. Okay, East Texas. Are you kidding me? So they have a couple of these units, like they have in a uh, like a hotel room. And the agent was telling me how they're you know it keeps the place very comfortable. I mean, I'm like, oh, you mean those units they have in hotel rooms that I have to put all the way on the lowest setting that barely keeps the hotel room comfortable during the day in the Texas heat? I don't think so. So could I make that property work? Yes. The cost of putting central air in is unbelievable when you have to because it's not ducted. 
It's not just the units, right? It's the whole like retrofit. So that doesn't work. Plus the bedroom missing. You see, and at that point, I realized that th there's a reason this property's been listed so damn long. And nobody wants to buy it. So even if it works for me, and even if I think this is the last place I'll ever buy in my life, there's an old saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And you can believe that's because it's what he has planned for you, or you can believe that's just because he knows what's going to happen and you don't. But either way, the proverb is, is valid. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Because he's like, <laughs> yeah, um, okay, I hope you listen to the survival podcast at all because you need a plan for when that doesn't work out, right? Yeah. Being a little bit ridiculous there. But just, I mean, there's a point there, right? So whenever you buy a property, you have to be thinking in this mindset. If next month the whole thing flipped on its head, and I'm not talking about the end of the world as we know it where there's nobody to sell it to, but for me the whole thing flipped on its head. I had to unload this property. How hard would it be able to do? How long would it take? And how much would I have to lose to get rid of it? So you have to have that exit strategy. So that means to be very conscious about what people generally will buy when you go in. And what you're looking for is everything to be right with a few little things wrong that are easy to fix that the guy selling the house is too stupid and too lazy and, frankly, too damn ignorant to fix. Because that's exactly what he should be doing because that will put his house right to the top of the market in its class. Right? But instead, he's not done those things. Because he's unreasonable, doesn't have the time, doesn't have the money, whatever it is. And he's left those little things undone, like painting, like carpet. I'll buy a house with crappy carpet and crappy paint tomorrow morning. I don't care. Because for a few thousand dollars, I can have that fixed before I even move in one box. It, it's it, An empty house, painting and carpet is so cheap, right? And, and, and that's the thing as a seller, you got to do those two things. And if they, So those, that's an example of a very minor thing. But another example would be, let's say that this house had three bedrooms. And let's say that, that, that during the construction they had ducted it for air conditioning, but lost some funding and then not put the central air unit. So now it's only a central air unit that has to go in. But the ducting was there, and putting it in would be relatively easy and, and relatively moderately expensive. Even if I don't have the funding to do that right away, I can have the plan to do that, and I can make do with what it has for now. But I've got a marketable home, and I've got very simple things I can do to make the home more marketable that the existing owner either doesn't have the money or the brains to do. Exit strategy. That's a that's huge exit strategy. If you had something like this, I've seen this exact example before. A house on a well. The well is a seasonal well, and it generally doesn't pump very much water for July and August of the year. But it was in a climate where, you know, by September it's raining its ass off. Now, there's all kinds of things from a permaculture standpoint that I can see to do now. All right, that I would have never thought of before, and those wells would probably stay full. And that would be even more valuable to the entire ecosystem. It's, it's the approach I would take now. But what's the simple answer to this? Well, the simple answer turned out to be to bring in two great big water storage tanks and pump the well water into the storage tanks with the gravity feed down to the house. And the total cost to do that was $5,000. And in this instance, the person that bought the property got the property for about 40% of market value because of the problem with the well. But they figured out how to fix the problem before they went in, and they just, you know, conveniently didn't tell the seller how to do it. So if you know you can correct the problem, then you can find the, the, the good deal, and you can have the exit strategy. But exit strategy, exit strategy, exit strategy. And let me tell you something. For most people that got hurt during the, the recession, 
they got hurt because they owned a property without an exit strategy. I mean, and you could say, well, when the market fell apart, nobody was selling whatever. I'm going to tell you again, guys, when we sold our property in Arlington, in the middle of the recession, at one of the hardest times there's been in modern history for a buyer to get a loan, we sold our house in three days. It was listed for three days, and it was a done deal. And it was actually like open for people to come in and look at it for one day. And the second buyer that walked in the door made an offer. When we sold our property in Pennsylvania, right, it was a good time to sell. But it was, you know, it was a $190,000 house. You don't just sell those in five minutes, but we did. The property literally sold before it was, it was sold in pre-listing. It was like the agent that we had had this one person that was looking for a property and said, before you even list it, you can come look at it. They went and looked at it and said, done, we'll buy it. We'll waive the homeowner's inspection. You'll take a full price. They didn't want to see a bidding war. Why? We took those properties to be at least 1% better than every single thing in their class. And that's what you want to do. You want to make a person that has a $130,000 budget look at a house they didn't believe they could afford for $130,000. That is the only trick. That is the only, that's the only thing you have to do. And if you buy right going in and you're smart about the upgrades that you do, you can always do that. So that's something that I would say, that's a general real estate thing. Um, number, another one is mobile homes are fine for what they are. And I would tell you that the mobile homes they're building today are far superior than even what they were building 10 years ago. We looked at one, because one of our other thoughts was, well, if I buy some raw land, have a cinder block basement put in, and stick a mobile home on that sucker, and now I've got double the floor space, I've got an underground shelter. I mean, that's, and it's still an option. With what's available, though, I, I don't know that I'll do it, because you start to end up back to the cost of just buying an existing place with all this infrastructure done. But, you know, it's a thought. And we looked at one that was amazing, and it was only $80,000. Set up and all, it was eighty grand, and it was... You couldn't build a house, a site-built house, using the same materials this thing had for 150, and it was really cool. This huge stainless steel refrigerator, and then next to it, this little bitty cabinet, little side cabinet thing, and you look at it and go, there, much, much, not much will fit in there. And when you pushed it in, it collapsed. There's a huge pantry, like a hidden pantry behind it. And I'm like, oh man, this is awesome. I had a little computer desk to keep inventory of your food. This is a mobile home for 80 grand, you know, and it was just beautiful. It, Bathrooms were beautiful. Everything was beautiful. The walls were, there wasn't that paneling at all. Um, but they, even that, there's certain things, generally speaking, with mobile homes that are different. There's not the standard building sizes of a lot of things at all. So it's something that's fine for what it is. We really love ours. When people come over to our house, they walk in and go, this is a mobile home? And it was things like painting, good carpeting, good countertops. You know, but there's certain things that when we've wanted to do, you know, you had a special order stuff. Like the countertops were easy because they cut them to fit. Uh, but when we wanted to put a new sink in and we wanted a black sink to match the black appliances, we needed a 19 versus a 22-inch sink. And we would have had to completely rebuild the entire cabinet structure to move it out to a 22-inch sink because it's built with a 19-inch sink. There's not a lot of them available. We finally found a place that did injection molded ones. It was a couple hundred bucks. It was no big deal. It looks beautiful now. But it wasn't simply go down to the store, pick out what you want, and get it. So be careful with the mobile homes and pay lower than market value. That's, that's what I got to say. When you find a mobile home for sale and it's got everything you want already set up and all, you really need to be a shrewd negotiator and you really need to drive the price down. And then you need to go in and you need to make it look like a site built house. Because that person that comes in to look at that, we're back to just being 1% better. The person that comes in to buy that property for $85,000, 
You want them to come in and go, I had no idea I could get something like this for $85,000. Because when you get that reaction and they're a qualified buyer, done. You get the sale. So that's, that's another thing with the exit strategy with mobile homes in particular. The next thing, um, having no real restrictions like city, county, government in your way, neighbors in your face rocks. Uh, I could never go back to a suburb. I, I just couldn't do it. I could not do it because of the, I've tasted the freedom. I've tasted the freedom of going, I want to swale in my front yard and getting a pick and a shovel and digging it. It's awesome. I had my neighbors looking at it going, what is that guy doing? He's digging a ditch on a weird curvy shape through the front of his yard. And now they come down there and they go, oh, my God, this is beautiful. But I needed the time to let the system mature. And you don't get that in the suburbs. So it is probably the biggest thing that I want out of a piece of property because it lets me look at it with a designer's eye and realize that whatever I can envision, I can create without somebody getting in my face. And it's part of the reason that I, you know, I kind of like property that has the house more toward the center of the property and is kind of wooded around the edges where you can't even see in. Again, I'm not trying to hide. I just want to be left alone. And here's a, just a fundamental reality about human beings. They only bitch about what they see. So if you can get a piece of property that screens out most of what the neighbors see, you can go in there and unless you're put in a meth lab, you can probably do anything you want and no one will give a damn. But if everybody has high visibility into your property, unless you're in a place where everybody's already doing the kind of stuff that you want to do and no one cares, you really got to think about buying that piece of property. But what you really don't want is a lot of interference from government. Because government inspectors find problems because they're told if you didn't find a problem, you didn't do your job. So if there isn't one, make one. And it sucks. And a lot of these guys really think they're helping, but in the famous words of Chandler Bing from Friends, you think you're helping, but you're not. And and then there are some things that they ha impose as restrictions that make sense in a suburban environment, but don't make sense in a rural environment. Uh, certain suburban neighborhoods with the houses really close together, they'll say, well, you can only have so many windows on one side of a house. You know what the reason? And you think, why the hell would that be the case? Well, the reason is a window is the main place where fire comes out during a fire and the main potential to spread it to the next uh, property. Or they'll say you have restrictions on how much square footage. So even if you could modify the house and put a second floor on a house, in some neighborhoods you can't because now you have too much square footage versus the lot. And in some instances, there's a reason for that. Because that way you don't end up with 80 people living in one house. I mean, there's, there's reasons people do these things. But generally when you're sitting on a couple acres out in the country, nobody gives a damn. And, and that's why you've got to stay away from the restrictions, in my, my personal opinion. Next one, and we've kind of covered this, so I'll just go over it quick. You need to be able to see property for what it can become, for what it can be. You need to be able to look at a property, and you need to be able to, with a designer's eye, go deck, put in there, Guest cottage there, swale, pond, this dirt will hold water, so I can put a pond in there. Roof catchment for a tank system, kitchen garden there, there's the water feed. You need to be able to see all that. But you also need to use the mental computer to be able to count the cost. And you need to think of what it's going to cost to do this stuff. And yes, you can use recycled, machine, recycled stuff and low-cost implementation. And there's a lot of things we can do that look very, very big for a very, very small relative amount of money. But the money's still there and so is the time. So you, you've got to be able to make that kind of cost analysis along with the design analysis at the same time. And here's the most important thing I'm going to tell you today if you're in the market to buy a house right now or buy a piece of property right now. When a real estate agent tells you, well, if you go too low, you might insult the seller, and, and then we just won't be able to buy the house. They are full of absolute crap. 
Okay. Let's say I decide I want to sell my house right now up in the, in the mountains. By the way, it'll probably be around $85,000. It will be a steal. It will be in a, for $85,000, this place will be the most amazing thing you can find near Hot Springs. You might find nicer, but you won't find it for $85,000. Now, if somebody came in there and, they, and, and their, an agent said, this guy's firm on $85,000, and I'll be pretty damn firm on $85,000 because I know what I've got. In fact, I might list it for $89,500 or something like that and be willing to draw back. And they say, well, you know what? If you offer this guy $67,500, you're just going to insult him. You're just going to insult him. And he's, he's not even going to want to deal with this then. You know what's going to happen? If that buyer says, just call him up and offer him 67.5 and see what he says. They're going to call my agent. My agent's going to call me. They're going to say 67.5. I'm going to say no. Goodbye. Now, am I going to write? Who, who offered that? Jerry Smith of Malvern. All right, Jerry Smith. No matter what you offer me in the future, I'm not going to take it. Do you really think that's the way real estate works? Or do you think if, if he goes back to Jerry, 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 the guy said, screw off. He said, no way. But if you want it, you know, we can go back in with another offer. And he goes, tell him 74. Now, I'm still not going to take 74. I'm just not going to do it. But he doesn't know that. And maybe I would. So if he comes back and goes, you know, now the buyer's offering 74. I'll go, no. But I'm not going to, okay, demerit number two. And if, and if that person comes back later and says, you know what, I am willing to pay the, pay the full price. What do you think I'm going to say? No, you've already insulted me? What kind of stupid mentality has led us to a place where we have real estate agents advising their buyers that you can offer too low a price? You cannot offer too low a price. It's impossible. Because I don't care what you offered yesterday. I care what you're offering right now. You can come in and offer me $40,000. It's just stupid. I'm not going to take you seriously. But it's not going to prevent you from coming back with a better offer. Now, in a hyper-competitive market where houses are going off the, you know, coming on a listing and going off the listing really, really fast, right? In that market, yeah. Yeah, there's times where if you really want it, you've got to come in with a strong offer right away. But in this market, are you kidding me? You know? And this is important for you to understand. Whether you have $80,000 or $180,000 to spend, either way. Tomorrow morning, somebody else will be willing to sell you a property for the price that you have. There will be another option. You can't go too low in an offer. And anybody that tells you you can, and I'm going to get somebody today. Jack, in my experience, you're full of crap. I want you to tell me a place where a guy went in and offered 60% of the sale price, came back later and said, you know what, uh, how about 95% of the sale price? The seller was willing to sell for that first price in the first place, but said, no, not you, because you offered too low in the past. Tell me one time it happened. And if you do show me that, I'm going to tell you, you've just shown me a person with more money than brains. A complete idiot. The exception to the rule. You cannot make too low of an offer. It's impossible. Never believe it. Always go to where you think you need to go and drop a few points from there. And then make that offer. And if they say no and you really are willing to pay more, come back with another counteroffer. But a lot of times what happens is when you go really, really low, you'll give the seller a gut check. And if they're not really confident in what they've done, they might counter much lower than they originally intended to. The guy might be offering, asking 95 and you come in and offer 65. And the guy goes, no, I'm not even going to do that. And, and, the, and the, you know, their, their agent, their listing agent, if they have any brains, and say, well, do you want to counter anything? I mean, I know he's way too low, but do you want to counter something? And the guy might go, I'd take 87.5 for it. You go back 87.5, and the guy goes, uh, no, I want uh, 77. You go, no, no, right? But at least you get a dialogue going there. And what do you say? Well, what if you don't get the dialogue going there? Well, then you come up, 
right? But don't think you can go too low. It's not possible. It really isn't. Um, the next one is, I think that the community is as important as the property. And you need to really evaluate the, the larger community as well as the neighborhood very, very heavily from a standpoint of, I want to live here, I want to be here, I want to be around these people. And, and I'll leave it at that because that's pretty obvious. And the last one, and we've talked about it today, but it's so, so important, usable land is more important than the total land area. If you can show me one property that has 15 acres, uh, but only about two of it are usable, and you can show me another property that has nine acres, and of that nine acres, all nine of it are usable, and it can be designed any way that I want, uh, I'm more inclined to take the nine acres. Uh, if you show me 15 acres and I can only use one, I'm more inclined to take five that are designable. And so, you know, it's things like slope and structure and things that, you know, again, a lot of times you don't think about, like, well, it's wooded. Well, I'll just cut it down. Well, do you really want to do that? Do you want to be that guy? And there's some places where it's low-quality growth and you can do it and it makes sense. And there's other places where it just doesn't. So you have to kind of balance that out. So hopefully today now you have a better understanding of why we've made this decision uh, and what's in it for you as, as a community and an audience. Uh, there's a lot in it. There's As much as we've learned here, man, we're going to learn more there. I think one of the big things that we've learned, though, that's really so encouraging is that permaculture does work anywhere. Where we're at is a harsh environment, and we're about to do some video, I think, probably this week, of the gardens that we've got in. You won't believe it. You, I mean, when you see, we've basically terraformed the property in, in, in less than a year because we really didn't get on it until, like, late in the fall. And there's this, you know, video that I showed where I showed up the slope and you could just see everything was dead. And when you see the abundance there now, you'll be blown away. So it's not that the place is a failure. It's that we've taken it to kind of a level where we really go, we can go further, but we can't go as far as we want and we want to go further. And we want to be closer to home. So that's, that's kind of the reasoning for that. That's some of the lessons we've learned. And hopefully, like, some of the things that we've learned will really help you guys as you make decisions about property, both as buyers and sellers, going forward. But I can tell you right now, this concept of it's a tough time to sell, it's not. It's really not a tough time to sell. There's always buyers. There's always buyers in your price range. And what you have to do is look at everything in that range, every single thing that's available in that range. And you have to be better than everything in the range. And if you do that, you'll find the buyer because they're always out there. They're always out there. There's just less of them now. There's more competition for them. Take it to a little bit higher of a level. Take the $130,000 house and make it not actually be but look like and feel like a $150,000 house, and it sells. It sells in 72 hours. We've done it. It does work. Uh, with that, hopefully it's been a good show today. A little bit different, a little bit of a change-up for a Monday. Uh, but hopefully you've enjoyed it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Yeah.